Now, with this passage in Mark chapter 4, we have the recording of a series of parables. And the significance of these parables is that, that it's, one of the, it's one of only two sections where Mark highlights the teaching of Jesus. In, like in the Gospel of Matthew, man, the teaching of Jesus is everywhere. You get the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the End of the World, Sermon on... I mean, you get all kinds of sermons in Matthew. But in Mark, you only get really two primary uh, teaching sections right here. And then Mark chapter 13 with Jesus teaching on the end of the world, kind of Jesus' sermon on the end of the world. And so as you're listening to this, you're listening into the teaching of Jesus. You're listening to a series of parables uh, brought together, and what you're listening for is you're listening for three words. The first word is seed, the second word is kingdom, and the third word is here, here. So as we read through that, you can be kind of looking for that so that you don't literally fall over um, because you're going to be hearing such a long section of scripture. Mark chapter 4 and starting in verse 1. It says, again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen or hear. Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain." And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive And may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately takes, comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. He said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, 
It will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he's, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately, privately to his own, I love this. Oh, I love this verse. Privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Mm, that is good. You may be seated. We're focusing on discipleship. You know, what is a disciple? Um, you know, a disciple is someone uh, who is really moving in the direction of the person and the work and the words of Jesus Christ. A disciple no longer defines their life as, as they would want it to be defined. They, they begin to define it the way that Jesus would define it. And one of the things about discipleship and being a follower, that's another good word for disciples, a follower of Jesus, is that, that discipleship is not about perfection. Discipleship is about direction. It's not a, a quick fix or some kind of spiritual exercise where you become perfectly sanctified and become this super Christian overnight. It is a long process of listening and looking and fixing our eyes on Jesus and falling in love with who he is and what he's done for us on the cross and listening to his words and responding to his words by faith. As, as he says here, accepting, hearing and accepting his word. And so a disciple is moving in the direction of the person of Jesus Christ. It's not a church program. It's not, it's not about results in our life. It is about a relationship. Christianity is the person and the work and the words of Jesus Christ. It's not liturgy. It's not buildings. It's not how much money you give to the church. It is Jesus, his people, and his purposes. And so we come in Mark as it's helping us to move in the direction of a life of the cross and the resurrection and the person of Jesus. We, we come to this section of Jesus talking really about the kingdom of God. Now, that's what we have to work on is the kingdom of God. Now, now here's my problem with this passage. I'll tell you early. My problem with this passage is Jesus is using a picture for the kingdom of God that seems to me to be pretty mundane. You know what I'm talking about? Like he keeps talking about like a farmer throwing seed into the ground. Now, I love farmers and we are farmers. Can I get an amen? We love farmers, but it's not exactly the most exciting thing in the world. You know what I'm saying? Like if, if, I, were, if I were to preach on the kingdom of God, you know what I would compare the kingdom of God to? It's like a big mountain range in the Rockies. You know what I mean? Like the kingdom of God is the big Rocky Mountains. 
Or, or I would compare the kingdom of God to a glorious sunset as you're laying on the beach. You know what I mean? Like, this is the way I would preach because, you know, I'm an exciting preacher. You don't have to say amen at that. Keep me humble. But you know what I'm saying. Like, I, I would do something really, really great. Like, like, the kingdom of God is like a high-definition TV that's the size of your living room wall, you know, and it's, it's glorious and it's wonderful. And look at the kingdom of God. And here's Jesus, and he says, this is important. The kingdom of God is like the smallest of mustard seeds and it goes in the ground. The kingdom of God is like seed going into the ground and the farmer has to go to bed day and night, day and night and nothing happens day and night, day and night until suddenly in its own time it begins to reveal itself. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is unimpressive at first The kingdom of God is not some spectacular thing that we walk out and go, oh, it's clear I should choose the kingdom of God and not the things of this world. No, no, no. The kingdom of God to those who have no spiritual discernment is nothing. The kingdom of God is founded in in the unimpressive, sacrificial, humiliating work of Jesus on the cross. In fact, he compared his own death to seed going into the ground. Do you remember that in the Gospel of John? The kingdom of God is not this glorious thing that is the obvious decision for our life. The kingdom of God is unimpressive at first, especially as we're dealing with the real business of life, especially as we're going out there and we're seeing all the spectacular people and all of the spectacular talents and all of the spectacular buildings and the accomplishments of man. The kingdom of God in comparison at first is unimpressive. This is the problem. Because the Bible had promised that the kingdom of God would come. The prophets talked about the kingdom of God coming and it, and it being this extraordinary thing. But when you look at the prophets, you, you see uh, uh, kind of this idea of the kingdom of God coming and what it would be like. And, and so, like, for example, let me just give you a couple of examples. But in, in Isaiah chapter 35, in verses 1 and following, here's a prophecy that, that really describes the coming kingdom of God. It, it says here in verse 1, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the corcos or corcus. I have no idea how to say that. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance With recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool. The thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. 
We, we think about Mark chapter 1. Remember in the desert, Jesus comes out in the desert and he's tempted and there's, there's like wild animals with him and Satan and, and all of these things and, and there's baptism happening out in the desert and we think about some of those passages as fulfillment of this. Another passage though would be Isaiah, and there's so many of these, but Isaiah 42, um, I think I'm going to start it in verse 6. What did I put? Oh, verses 1. What did I put up there, uh, Chase, for Isaiah 42? Okay, so I, did, I decided on 6 through 9. Here's what it says. It says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So there's all these passages, and the idea is that the kingdom of God is going to come, healing is going to come, and then if you read like Isaiah, Isaiah 61, it says that all the nations will be judged, that the Messiah will come, he will bring the kingdom and, and the government of, uh, we read, remember, remember the prophecy of, of the virgin birth and the coming Messiah, and, and it says that the, that the government of the world will be on his shoulders, he'll be wonderful counselor, mighty God, uh, everlasting God, uh, prince of peace, we, we read about all of these passages and what everybody thought as they studied these passages before Jesus came is they thought there would be this old creation of fallenness and darkness and injustices and nations tripping out and wars and famines and sickness and that's the old creation as a result of original sin and that there would be a sudden stop everybody say stop and then the new creation and the kingdom would come there would be a definite stop between the new and the old. So the way the scribes and the, and we understand this, we, we almost can sympathize with the scribes and the Pharisees because they thought of eschatology and the end of all things like this. You got old creation, stop. Then the kingdom would come. All nations would be judged. Everyone would be healed. The wicked would be thrown into, you know, everlasting condemnation and the good people and the righteous people would live with God in the kingdom forever. There would be a stop. So here comes Jesus in the gospel of Mark in sandals, out in the desert, veiled in human flesh. Here he comes and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And you know what happened? Crickets. Just like right now. Just crickets. Cricket? And the scribes were saying, well, if he's the Messiah, if this is the kingdom of God, then why is Rome still occupying our land? Why isn't, why isn't these bad Roman soldiers overthrown? Because our eschatology has a stop and a beginning to the new kingdom. And if Jesus is the Messiah, then all of the things that were prophesied in Isaiah should happen at the snap of, a, of the fingers. Now, what should have been a corrective to their theology is that what Jesus started to do was some of those things. He healed people to show that the kingdom had started. He began to, lame people started walking, blind people started to see in fulfillment of some of those prophecies. And that should have been a corrective to the Pharisees. And they should have said, oh, he's the one. It's just not happening exactly as my timetable had it. Now, when we take, you're like, what's the point of all this? I'll tell you what the point is. Thank you for asking. And this is a good question. But here's the point. 
When we come to the teaching of Jesus in the parables, here's what he's saying. It's not a stop-start. It's the seed of the kingdom going into the old creation, and what's going to come out and replace the old creation is going to be the new creation through a process of time. And so Jesus gives us a different rhythm. And I call it, I call it, I don't know, scholars don't call it this, but I do, so you might need to go to another church, I don't know, but I call it the theology of overlap. It's the overlap of the old creation with the new creation. It's the overlap of the old world with the coming kingdom of God. And so what it looks like is it looks like this. This is the old creation. Everything's all jacked up. Everybody's messed up. We're all sinners and full of contradictions. And there's always wars and there's borders and there's walls and there's politics. And gosh, are you sick of it? I am. Anyways. That's the old creation. Because of original sin, as my mama used to say to me, Joshua, Adam, and Eve messed it up for all of us. Okay, anyways, theology from my household. All right, old world. But here's the thing. In the midst of the old world would come the new kingdom, and there's overlap. And where you and I get to live, guess where we're living right, right now? We're living in the tension of the old and the new. Is that making sense? There's overlap. What scholars do call it, they call it the already not yet kingdom. The kingdom has already been inaugurated. Jesus has inaugurated, but he's not completed it yet. And you and I are living in the tension. That's why when we come to church, we have plenty to sing about. But when we go and live in the world, we have plenty to cry about. You know what I'm saying? That's why when we come to church, we're filled with hope as we join together in fellowship. But as we go into the realities of our life, we're tempted by despair. That's why you and I have to deal with the tension of the, well, we like to call it the poetry and the plumbing of life. The poetry of the beauty and the majesty of God and truth and church and community and all that's right and good and absolute. And the plumbing of real life and the tension of, of, of the world. You and I, our life is defined by the tension. The tension. The temptation, even within ourselves, if you're a born-again Christian, if you believed in Jesus, the Holy Spirit's come, but you're not perfectly sanctified. You and I are filled with contradictions. There's a part of us that's the old life, and there's a part of us that's the kingdom of God by the Holy Spirit. We haven't gotten to the place where Jesus comes back and makes all things new, where he comes back and everybody's healed, where everybody's always healthy, where there's no more sickness or sadness or wars or injustices. We still live here, even in our heart, we're living with contradictions and we feel it. Our life is like a massive tug of war. Big old thick rope, and there's two sides to it. And on the one side, the, old, the old, old world and the old life is trying to pull us back into that darkness. And the Holy Spirit's on the other side of the rope trying to pull us into truth. And we are in the middle, and we're feeling the tension between the reality of what God wants and the reality of what I'm tempted by. I don't like this any more than you. But I sure am glad that he came and he started the kingdom of God, aren't you? And aren't you glad that you're forgiven? And aren't you glad that if you believe in Jesus, you're guaranteed the coming kingdom of God? But can I tell you that what this teaches us, man, I'm on a roll. I didn't know I was going to get this excited. I was like, this is going to be boring. It's actually pretty exciting. Anyways, here's the thing. 
What this tells us is that Christianity and salvation in Jesus is not primarily about going to heaven. It's not. It's about being prepared for the coming kingdom of God, which is even now coming down to us and will make all things new. And we're going to live in a real new earth and a real kingdom. We're going to walk around with glorified bodies, which I'm personally excited about. The, the gospel is all about the kingdom coming down. And one day there's going to be a break. That's the coming of G, the second coming. And all this is going to be cast in the sea of, of damnation. And that new thing where nations are going to be united, where races are going to be united, where Jesus is going to rule on the throne. And we're finally going to see that he is glorious and wonderful. But what we got to do in the meantime, beloved, is we got to wait patiently we got to live simply. Jesus is telling his disciples, I know. Jesus always said things like, you know, I think it's John 16, 33. He's like, you know, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. But fear not, I've overcome the world. And we're like, great. You know, like, like that's great. But how, how can I tap into your overcoming when I'm going through tribulation? When I'm dealing with this conflicting life and yet I've got the glorious good news of Jesus in my heart. How do I, how do I live in this tug of war victoriously? How do I, how do I walk? How, how do I keep following Jesus and not fall away? How do I do that, Jesus? And he gives us the secret. And it's so simple that you might miss it because we want complicated solutions for our life. Don't you know? My life is so complicated and so difficult and you just don't understand. And I, dude, I get it. But, but here's the thing. Complicated life, sometimes the best solutions are simple solutions. Can I get an amen? And Jesus tells his disciples, listen. Disciples, Listen. And disciples flourish in a fallen world as they hear God's word in fellowship with Jesus. Disciples flourish in this tension. When, I'm going to pull red marker. Tension. And that's going to be a part of your, the rest of your life, even as a believer. Your problems aren't going to go away. You're still going to weep and lose people and there's going to be sickness at times. There's going to be things that happen to you. And me, there could be something happening to you right now. And how do I deal with that tension? Do I get super spiritual? Do I go and do something really fancy? Is there some kind of really, you know, magical thing that Jesus, a magical one that makes all the problems go away? No, Jesus says this. And this is what, and what Jesus is saying. Most people miss this because it's too simple. Disciples flourish as they listen and hear God's word in fellowship with Jesus. That's how we make it. We abide in the word of God in fellowship with Jesus. Look at this. It's repeated. It's all over the place. This is, this is what holds it all together. Verse 3, Jesus says, listen. Greek word, root, akuo, means here. That's the shortest sentence in the Greek New Testament. Listen. There's only like four one-word sentences in the whole Greek New Testament. That's one of them. He says, listen, 
Verse 9, he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's not a liturgical formula. That's not some religious saying. That's Jesus saying, if you got ears, hear, listen, listen. He says in verses 10, this is interesting. Look at verses 10 and following. It says, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12, so the 12 are the, are the disciples for the foundation of the church, but that doesn't mean they're the only disciples. There are other disciples outside of the 12. That's you and me. We're around the 12. We're with Jesus. And he, and he asked him about, and they asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 6 there. And what he's saying is like, look, man, when, when there was original sin and people fell and they, re, they rebelled against God, their hearts were hardened because their hearts wanted to be hardened towards God. And what the Bible says is that if human beings say, I don't want to be tender towards the promises or the word of God, the Bible says God will give them up over to themselves. And that it's only grace that can soften rebellious hearts. And he says to them, the reason why I'm giving you grace is so that you can hear and perceive and understand and turn and be forgiven. I want to note, though, with that passage, it's not just about hearing the word. This is important. Not just about listening to the word, but in fellowship with Jesus. That's, what, that's where the real power is. It's, it's a relationship. It's not information alone. It's fellowship and relationship with Jesus and his word that makes all the difference in the, wor- in the world. Again, look at verse 20. Mark chapter 4, verse 20, it says... But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. That, that word, accept it. I looked up the, the Greek word, paradekomai uh, is the Greek word. It, it takes the word that means receive. It adds like a prefix to make it even more intensive. And what it means is to receive with the whole heart, with a great attitude. To receive the word positively. To open it up and say, I want to eat in, in the presence of Jesus, the word of God. I want to receive and fellowship with him. I am, I've got a great attitude to everything Jesus says to me. You want to make it through the tension? You've got to have a great attitude towards welcoming the word of Jesus in your life. Verses 23, look at verse 23. And I'm sorry I'm being redundant, of this it says in verse 23 if anyone has ears to hear let him hear and he said to them I love this pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you what's he saying he's saying listen man if you open up in fellowship with me to my word I'll give you even more understanding I will accumulate understanding as you open up. I'll give you even more understanding. But those who don't understand the word in fellowship with me, even what they know will be taken away from them. One last example on this. You see, disciples flourish in a fallen world. 
as they hear God's word and fellowship with Jesus. That's how we deal with this tension. Look at, look at verse 34. He says, He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. And what that means is so important. Man, God is not interested in you being a great scholar. Can I get an amen? He's not interested in scholars. He's interested in followers who are in relationship with him. He wants to give wisdom that is proportionate to our relationship and our worship and loving him and loving others and being loved by him. He wants love to be the defining power of gaining wisdom from the word of God. See, it's in fellowship. Disciples flourish. They flourish in this tension as they hear God's word in fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what you and I need. Isn't that so simple? And Jesus is telling them, I want to come to you even in your tension and be in relationship with you. I want you to hear good things in your life from me and my word. And that's what discipleship is all about. Fellowship with Jesus and the word of God. This, this last week I got to go see Abigail. Ab- Abby's my oldest daughter. She just started her freshman year at Moody Bible Institute. Archers. Okay, anyways. And uh, that's in the middle of Chicago. And I got to drive down and go see her. And so when I was hanging out with her, I took her some things that she needed and wanted and all those things. And we're hanging out. I was like, what do you want to do? I'll do, we'll do whatever you want to do. You want to, she goes, well, I'd really like to go eat because college students are poor, right? And she's been living on like ramen noodles and like crackers with a little jelly on there. And uh, so I was like, man, I'll take you anywhere you want to go. Where do you want to go? And she said, well, it's kind of a running joke with the students at Moody. You know, don't go to Giordano's until your parents come into town because they can afford it, right? And so Giordano's is this great, I mean, I'm sure you know, but it's kind of the pizza joint there in, 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 in Chicago. And so Abby and I, I said, well, baby, your daddy's in town and I'm going to feed you right. And I mean, we went to Giordano's, we walked down and we were in downtown. It was the funnest thing. And we got to be in fellowship and we broke some some pie, you know what I mean? We, we, we broke that bread and ate some pizza together. And here's this poor college student in a new city that, that she hasn't lived in since she was a little baby. And, and, and there she is. And, and there's daddy feeding her. And we're talking over fell. And, 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 and that's how it is. And, and here's the thing. You and I, we're like poor college students in this tension. You see what I'm saying? We're, we're kind of like, we're going through the ramen noodles phase of our spiritual walk with the Holy Spirit. We're, we're hungry at times and confused at times and overwhelmed by the bigness of the city and, and, and by life. And, and Jesus says, listen, not only do I want to have fellowship with you, but I want to feed you myself. I want to be at the table with you and give you the word of God so that you can bear much fruit in a fruitless world. So that you can bear much fruit in a fruitless world. You see, disciples flourish in a fallen world as they hear God's word in fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what these parables are all about. So you say, well, 
I want to be in fellowship with Jesus, and I, I want to hear God's word, and I want to be, I want to be more biblical, and I want, to, I want to hear this word, and really, like, like the disciples were, they're, they're in that room, man, privately with Jesus, in community together, and I, everything happens in community, by the way. Every, everything happens together. It's never a, a lone ranger kind of spirituality. It's never kind of like this privatized things. Even the private moments of the disciples, they were together. They had to deal with each other in the room and with Jesus, and so what's going to happen? I mean, I mean, if you get biblical, I mean, like, like you start opening up God's word and you want to have a relationship with Jesus, what's it going to tell you? What are the, what are the things it's going to tell you about how to walk in the tension of, between the old and the new and the old creation and the new kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated? What's it going to tell you to do? Let me give you just four things really quick to look for as you're reading scripture in fellowship with Jesus that will help you deal with the tension, help you to flourish. And I'm going to alliterate. Now, I know, I, I kind of hate it when preachers alliterate because it's kind of cheesy. You know what I'm saying? But here's the thing. Here's the reason why I alliterate. Not because I think you're going to remember it tomorrow. In fact, I hope you just remember one of these steps. Um, but it's so that I can remember what I'm talking about up here. Can I get an amen? It helps me more than it helps you. So I'm alliterating so I can communicate to you. So what, what, what do we... What do we look for as we're reading God's word? If you look for specific things that Jesus is telling you to do, what would he be telling you to do from Genesis to Revelation? No matter where you're at in God's word and fellowship with Jesus, the first thing Jesus is always going to be telling you to do through his word, he's going to feed you on the idea of rejecting worldliness from your life. It's It's everywhere. If you go to the Word of God and you start reading it in fellowship with Jesus, the message is always going to be the same. Reject worldliness. Like, well, that's a negative little step to start with. Sorry, it's got to be done. Can I get a hallelujah? We just got to say it. You have to reject worldliness. Now, I always thought that worldliness was like, you know, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. You know what I mean? That's what I always thought worldliness was. But actually, worldliness is defined right here in the parable of the sower and its explanation. When you read the parable of the sower and the explanation of the parable of the sower, what you're reading about is worldliness that steals away the seed of the word of God from people's lives. And boy, by the way, the statistics are not very good for Jesus' ministry. He's basically saying that he only gets one out of four of the soils. So that's not a very good statistic, is it? And that's pretty accurate to the church, by the way. About 25% really stick in there and hang in there and really follow Jesus all the way to the end. And Jesus says that the reason why people fall away is because of worldliness, a worldly mind. What is a worldly mind? Well, look at verse 13. Let's just walk through because this is the primary application of these parables. He says in verse 13, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And sometimes people hear the word, it's immediately snapped, snatched away from Satan. And we find out the strategy of Satan in the world. Listen, 
I can guarantee this. I can guarantee it. Satan could care less how it happens, where it happens, what it looks like, as long as you get disconnected from Jesus in your life. And if he can make you proud because you're moral and because you're successful and because everybody likes you, but you haven't been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, he's just as happy about that as he is about the drug dealer or the addict or the alcoholic or whatever worldly sin you can think of. Satan's only goal in this world is to keep people from Jesus Christ because he is the way that people are reconciled to God. And when that message, that word of Jesus being the reconciled, being the one mediator between God and people, Jesus being the leader of our church, when that message goes out, Satan's doing everything he can to take it away from people. And he tells people, oh, you're too good for that, or you're too intellectual for that, or you're too whatever. And he cleverly, through clever schemes, makes sure that that word doesn't take root about forgiveness and reconciliation and needing Jesus alone for our salvation. Satan is as much in religion as he is in irreligion. He's as much in, in all of those, all those fancy expressions of spirituality that make people so proud. And he snatches the word of the gospel. That's his goal. And you and I, we have to ask ourselves, how is Satan trying to steal that word from my heart? Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he talks about how the the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Hmm. But he goes on to talk about worldliness in verse 16. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy. And I'll tell you why. They receive it with joy because they're, they're, sorry, I'm not used to doing this. I'm like a rookie at this. But they're used to this. They want this eschatology. They want their old life to just end and all the good stuff to come. And they hear the word. Jesus, he's risen? Are you kidding? Are you joking? God loves me? That is awesome. God, God forgives me? What? And they're pumped up because they're imagining a Christianity where all their problems are suddenly going to go away. There's never going to be any problem. God's just like a magic microwave. You throw yourself in there, hit one minute, and boom, you're popcorn. This is great. And you know, I think all of us, when we first became Christians, had a little bit of that in us. I mean, I became a, a Christian overnight at 17. I went from a secular jerk to like, love God. I mean, overnight. And I thought, oh, this is it. Nothing bad's ever going to happen to me again. And I'm going to become a preacher and everybody's always going to like me. And here's what happens to those who receive it with joy. Worldliness. And they have no root in themselves. They endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. On account. It's, it's not just that Christianity doesn't take all of our problems away. It's that Christianity adds to our problems. Jesus and the truth adds problems to how we relate to people professionally, to how we relate to people in culture. 
and persecution comes. And maybe we don't, I mean, in our culture, we don't have to deal with the persecution of the sword, but we deal with the persecution of the tongue. And our worldly mind is, is, is not uprooted by the word. We just, we can't take it. We've grown up too, too long wanting the acceptance. We've become too recreational. We're too consumer-oriented to accept some kind of suffering as a result of believing in Jesus. I'm not trying to be hard on us. I'm just speaking the truth today in love, hopefully. Verse 18. This is worldliness. You've got to reject this. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. See, we want the kingdom of God to be the big mountain range, the beach resort. Can I get an amen? We want it to be Disney World. We want it to be pretty. Wait a minute, what, what, what's all this mustard seed talk? What's all this, this farmer stuff, man? I, I, I want a kingdom of God that, that, that drives fast cars and lives in big houses. And I, I want a kingdom of God that, that, that brings me such material blessing that, I, that I'm envi- enviable. All, all, all the advertisements and all the messages are telling me I should live this enviable life. You mean that God might call me to, to not hoard my money but be generous? You mean God might, might call me to be sacrificial, to find life and giving my life? Do you mean that, that God might call me to, to live in a, a smaller dwelling than a larger dwelling for his purposes, for his mission, for his gospel, for his word? You, you mean God might a- actually ask me to, to, to skip some of my extracurricular activities so I can prioritize being in community with the church? Do you, do you mean that God might actually call me to actually commit to a deeper level and give up some of the nice things? I don't think so. That's not the good life. I'll just kind of hope that Jesus is enough to be fire insurance so I don't go to hell and that'll be good enough. Don't ask me to find my life and giving up my life and, and sacrificing my life for mission. And people fall away. It chokes out the word. You can't even hear it. You don't even have the attention span to hear it. It just chokes out Jesus' loving word in our life. And we, we can't hear him guiding us to awesome ministry and awesome opportunities and lasting legacy for his glory because we're so choked on the temporary things of this world. That's worldliness, beloved. That's worldliness. You've got to reject it. Everywhere you go in the Bible, it's going to call you to reject this worldliness. Satan and persecution, tribulation and riches and the cares of this world choking out the word of God. That's worldliness. That's what it is. He says in verse 20, but those who are sown on the good soil, the ones who hear the word and accept it. Positive attitude. Jesus, whatever you say, Whatever you say, 
I'm in. You want me to wear a t-shirt instead of a tie? I'm actually happy about that. You want me to drive a, 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 a slower car than a faster car? That's awesome. As long as you guarantee me a chariot of fire in the kingdom of God. Can I get a hallelujah? I'll drive fast there. I'll live in the mansion that Jesus is building for me right now. I'll take that room and I'll take the shack here and get that room later. I'm ready. I accept it. Not only do I accept it, I receive it with a great attitude. Whatever you say, Jesus, whatever your word says, man, I'm standing on the promises of God. I believe. I accept. I hear. I walk in. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's where life comes. And he's good. He's not going to lead you to bad things ultimately. He's going to lead you to life. You'll have more life in your little shack than all these people living in their big fancy houses and they can't even hold their life together. Accept it. You'll bear fruit. Everywhere you read in the Bible, God's going to tell you the same thing. Reject worldliness. If you're reading in the New Testament and you're reading through and you're like, man, I'm in fellowship with Jesus and I'm going to flourish because I'm listening to the word of God. I'm listening. I'm hearing it. You might read a passage like this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and following. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What other things of the world? Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Oh, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away. That's passing away. This is what's coming. The eternal kingdom, that's coming. This, is gonna, this has got to stop date. There's an expiration date. Unfortunately, it's not like a milk carton, so there's no date on there. There are a lot of Bible conferences that wish there were. We don't know. But this is coming to an end. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Reject worldliness. And you know what Jesus is saying? That seed is in the ground and you can't see it. So you're going to have to walk by faith and not by sight. You're going to have to walk by the word and not by images. You have to be different than everybody else because everybody else is living off of pictures and images and movies and everything they see. Ooh, oh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Everything's happening. I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm looking. I got my iPad and I got my iPhone and I got my Instagram and I got, I got, I got all this stuff happening, all these images. And you're going to have to walk, listen, by faith and not by sight. You have to hear more than you look. Jesus is saying those who hear the word, not see it, it's in the ground. It's still kind of coming up. So you got to walk by faith. You got to reject worldliness. See, disciples flourish as they hear God's word in fellowship with Jesus. And the first thing the word's going to tell you in fellowship with Jesus is it's going to tell you to reject worldliness. But here's the, the second thing. The, the word in fellowship with Jesus is going to tell you to receive wisdom. Receive wisdom. Now, I'm using wisdom specifically because here's what wisdom is. Wisdom is the ability 
to connect the, the rea- to, to connect the riches of Scripture to the realities of your daily life. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that most of our daily decisions are morally neutral issues. Not everything is like this big moral good or bad decision. It's you could go one way or the other. And to know God's will, you need wisdom. Now, the Bible's not going to tell you what house to buy, what car to buy, what, you know, uh, what job to take. And what it takes is it takes wisdom to know the difference, to not lean on your own understanding, but to trust in the Lord in all your ways with all of your heart, and he will guide you in wisdom. To believe that God is actually speaking to you through the word in the Holy Spirit and fellowship with Jesus to have wisdom as you walk through life. So, Reading the Bible is not just about getting the information of the Bible. It's about a relationship and asking God, okay, God, I see the truth, and I, here's the decision in my life. And he, there's even morally neutral issues. Which way do I go? How are you going to lead me in my life? And, and, and Jesus is telling us to receive wisdom. There are many people, um, gosh, man, there are, there are many people who know this book inside and out. Lots of people in this world have forgotten more of this book than you and I will ever, ever know our whole life. But just because you know the word, just because you know the word doesn't mean that you have wisdom. You have to know the word in relationship with Jesus and seek wisdom for your life based on that as you're led by Christ and by the Holy Spirit. I'm running out of time. So so what's going to happen? Reject worldliness receive wisdom. Here's the the third thing is is that the Bible's always going to tell you to represent the kingdom in this fallen world. So we have a new call in our life and and our new call is that in the tension we are called to represent the coming kingdom in this world. So what's the coming kingdom? The coming kingdom is justice. I know you can't read my writing but sorry. Truth Peace, love, um, God's people. And what we're called to do as disciples is not just live for ourselves in Jesus, but to live for the world by representing the kingdom of God in our life, representing justice and truth and peace and healthy and harmonious relationships in a world that doesn't have that, to represent the kingdom. I love that Jesus says... Uh, in verse 20, again, sorry to read it to you again, but it says, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Well, now, wait a minute. I thought the fruit was the kingdom of God. I mean, later on, he talks about, you know, the kingdom of God. It's like a seed. It goes in the ground, and then, the, and then it comes out fruitfulness. You know, it's, just, it's like this, this, this fruit. The kingdom is the fruit. So now we're bearing fruit. What, what does that mean? What that means is, is that you and I, within the soil of a broken world, we bear the fruit of the coming kingdom of God, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, against which there is no law. It, the, 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 the fruit of the coming kingdom is love is patient and kind, and it's not jealous, and it's not envious, and it doesn't keep records of wrongs, and it, it endures all things, hopes all things, believes all things. Love never ends. The fruit of the kingdom is loving God with our whole heart, loving our neighbor as ourself. That's, that's fruit. 
And beloved, here's the thing. The church does not exist to change the world. We're not going to change the world. It's fallen. We're not going to change the world. The only thing you and I are called to do is represent the kingdom of justice, of truth. We reject worldliness. We receive wisdom. We represent the kingdom. Here's the final thing, and then I'm done. We rest in the promises of God. Disciples flourish in a fallen world when they hear God's word and fellowship with Jesus and what the Bible's going to tell you and I to do in good times and in bad is to rest in the promises. To derive our rest in the promises we read about. You know you hit a promise in the Bible. You know you'll be reading it and you'll find a promise. You underline that with a red pen or a blue pen or a purple pen. Some colored pen you underline promises as you read. And here's what you do. You say, I'm going to stand on that promise. I'm going to rest in the promises of God. And my favorite, my favorite parable, I'll be done. I'm almost done. I can tell you all ready for me to be done. I'm going to be done. But my favorite parable is the farmer. I love the farmer. Jesus says the farmer takes the seed, whoosh, throws that seed in the ground, and you know what he does? He goes to sleep. And it says night and day, he keeps waking up, and he wakes up, and he goes out, and he looks at the field, nothing. But you know what he does? He goes back to sleep. He doesn't worry about it. He doesn't get anxious about it. He doesn't, he doesn't do it. He just goes back to sleep. He goes into bed. He goes back. He wakes up the next day, goes out, looks at his field. Nothing. Does he flip out? Oh, no, there's not going to be a crop. Oh, no, no. He knows about the quality of the seed. So he goes right back to bed. He wakes up the next day. Nothing. That's okay. I'm going to sleep tonight better than ever before because I bet you I'm closer to the end than I was to the beginning. Can I get a hallelujah? I bet you I'm closer. I bet you I'm closer. And then he wakes up and he goes out. And you know what he sees? Little itty bitty green little thing sticking out of that ground. And he goes, it's a start. And he goes to bed. And he sleeps again, and he wakes up, and then it's a little bit taller, and then it's a little bit taller. And all the while, you know what the farmer's doing and what Jesus says? Jesus says, the earth does the work. All the farmer has to do is just rest in the work of the earth. And you know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, God's going to keep all his promises. You don't even have to do anything for him to keep his promises. Your only job as you read scripture is to rest in the promises of God. And you might not get it tomorrow. You might not get it next week. You might not get it next year. But the promises of God are as bright as the attributes of God. And he will complete everything he has begun in our life. And so you and I, we can go to sleep day and night night and day. You see, we begin to flourish. You want to flourish? How do you flourish? How do you flourish when you're dealing with this mess? You rest. Rest in his promises. If God says it, I believe it. Not because it's some kind of 
intellectually acceptable or because it's socially acceptable. It's acceptable because it comes from the heart of the pure and loving and holy God and he will keep his promises. And some of you, you need to go find those promises. I've got some promises I need to track down for things I'm dealing with in my own life. And this is a good word for me. Disciples flourish as they rest in the promises of God in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your promises. I just, I bet you, Lord, and you know more than I do, but I bet you both myself and someone else, maybe many of us today, we, we feel a restlessness. We feel the anxiety. It's normal and it's to be expected in this world. But I pray that you might give us a promise to rest in, that we might be like this farmer. Even without results, he was able to sleep at night and uh, give us that kind of rest, that soul rest, that spirit rest that, that we can have and that's ours in the Holy Spirit because Jesus died for us and defeated death. Thank you for that. And Lord, we do. We want to be people of the word, but we realize that it's not just you know, some magical book, but it's a, a word to be experienced in relationship with you. So increase our ability to fellowship with you. Increase our ability to have rhythms of quiet time and prayer time and, and bless our gathering together, both uh, here in our larger setting, but also in our life groups this week. Just really bless those times and those, those moments when we're kind of sitting around the word, but we're really wanting to be united and practice our union with Jesus. Help, just bless those times, I pray, and bring about good renewal and revival in those times. So Lord, we love you. May your word accomplish its purpose today, and we thank you for our church today. In Jesus' name, amen.